The key truth this morning we want to look at is that the gospel is the basis for godly living. The gospel and godly living. There's three points on your outline this morning. The sinful life, the saved life, and the secure life. And last Sunday evening, we looked at verses 1 to 2 of Titus chapter 3. And Paul instructed Titus to remind the true church of God to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to rulers and authorities, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarrelling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Essentially, what he was saying is that all followers of Jesus should be reminded to live a godly life, especially amongst unbelievers. And in the sermons we want to look at in the next months ahead, uh, we want to look at the gospel in details, in detail. But this morning, my focus is for us to examine the purpose for which Paul posed this reminder to those that were in Crete, in Greece at the time. Whilst verses 1 to 2 are imperatives and commands to follow, we need to know that why we should follow those commands. Why should we pay attention to how we live? Why should we live godly lives at all? As any parent or adult will know, for most commands that you give a child, what is the usual response? Why? Why? To which a parent would normally say, or an adult would say, because I said so. (laughs) That's the response, because I said so. But it's something innate in every human being that wants to understand the reason for what we do. The answer to the why should we live godly lives is vital because it shapes and fashions our life in this present age and in the age to come. But it also addresses our past. If you've been listening to the news this week, you will know that Russell Brand has been accused of some grievous sins, allegedly committed in his very open, promiscuous past. And now he has seemed to become somewhat changed or sensible in his way of living, but his past has now sort of come to haunt him. I'm not saying he's guilty, but reality is there is a past to everyone. And false religion states that uh, we can be better. There's a better you. You can be a better person. And that there is a, a path to enlightenment. So there's a path to liberation. But they never really deal with the heart issue, which is sin. How is someone able to have a clean slate from all the bad things that they've ever done? And in fact, will they? Will they ever be free? Hinduism says, do good because karma is round the corner. If you do otherwise, then expect the same. But there is no mention of forgiveness. Only in post-judgment, enacted by who? By what? How? How much good shall I do? Will I not live in fear every time I do wrong? Expecting some type of payback. Even more, if you do well in this life, you can come back again as someone else or something different. Who wants to come back again to another pandemic? 
Buddhism states that all existence is characterized by suffering and that self-efforts bring enlightenment. That the root of suffering is desire and when desire, whether it's good or bad, ceases, then suffering ceases. And that the highest goal in life is a life without suffering. A state of utter bliss. Bliss where? Bliss in this world? There is no bliss in this world. There is no blissful life here this side of eternity. Islam teaches that the present world will one day be destroyed by Allah and that although all humans have a tendency of sin and weakness of will, but Muslims do not believe in the doctrine of the fall and therefore reject that any human being has a sinful nature and consequently the idea of redemption is rejected and only a future deliverance from final judgment is embraced. But Christianity is the only religion that gives the truth about the state of humanity, the reason for suffering, the need for a saviour. Who is that saviour? Jesus Christ our Lord. What the saviour has done. That expected perfect future, a home with him, the saviour. It is a love story that began before time came to being. As the almighty God brings beauty from beasts, foes become friends. Enemies are embraced, grace given to the godless, mercy shown to the merciless, forgiveness given to the faithless, and those who are without heaven are given a kingdom, heirs of the kingdom of an eternal kingdom of God. Every human being, like Russell Brand, has a past. That past is where we must begin this morning. If we're to see the gospel as the basis for godly living. And so on your outline, the first point, the sinful life. The sinful life. Paul writes in chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That is to say that the godly life given as imperatives in verses 1 to 2 is to be lived by those who have had a transformational encounter with God. It says, because for once upon a time, that was not the status quo we also partook of those sins. We were not so submissive, not so obedient to authorities. We were not ready for every good work. We were speaking evil of one another, quarrelsome, not so gentle, not so courteous to others. But Paul reminds Titus in, every, in, in, in turn, every true believer of Christ about our past before Christ. That word we in verse 3 is inclusive of Paul himself. You and I have a past that is dark and without hope. Every human born into this world is born stained by sin. Whilst Paul does not specifically mention the word sin, he tells us what sin is. Sin is foolishness, disobedience, lost in worldly ways. That's what it means to be led astray. Slaves to self, worldly passions, to 
doing harm to others with speech and action and strife with one another. And Titus 2.11 gives us clarity on this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And Paul will further on to say in verse 14 that we are saved from lawlessness. Now Paul could easily have written chapter 3 verse 3 and just said, For we ourselves were once sinners, job done. But here is a man who is very much aware, aware of his past also. He writes from a place of humility, recognising the level of his own sinfulness and our sinfulness. You see, the gospel living stands in contrast in, with worldly ways. Our life before Christ should be a stark contrast to our life in Christ, with Christ. Every true Christian should be able to say, I was once foolish, disobedient, led astray, a slave to various passions and pleasures, passing my days in malice. But that is not my life now. Paul is writing to Titus, remind the church that such were we. We too partook in this destructive and dangerous living. Futile it was. And so we take each of these in turn. We were foolish, but while we acted fool, like fools, without wisdom, we thought we knew it all. The knowledge, the understanding of how life is, I can plan my way forward. I just need to follow this path. I'll be retired by the age of 30, I said. That's how the world works. How to obtain what we want. We know how to get there. There are books that say, follow this, you'll get there. But we knew nothing. We lacked spiritual understanding. We lacked faith which clouded our judgments. And Paul, with all his education and credentials, as a learned man himself, recognises foolishness for formally not trusting in God. We were disobedient, not willing to yield to authority. Rejecting our parents, rejecting authority at school, rejecting authority anywhere, just roaming the streets. I'm in charge of my own person, let alone God. Who is that? We did what's right in our own eyes, we rejected Him. We were led astray, following the principalities of this world, rulers and authorities that led and kept us from the truth. Every time woke up to read the word, oh, there's other things on your mind to do. There's more things that are more important, more priorities to face. Swept away by the prince of the power of the air, namely Satan. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. Without self-control, Whatever my ha- eyes could see or my hands could touch. Not reverent in behaviour. Our consciences were defiled and pure. We were held bound to the lust of the flesh. Lust of the eyes and the pride of life. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. Such was us. Passing our days in malice and envy. A mean-spirited disposition to do evil in response to others' actions. I can't take that. What, what do you say? That's our response. 
unexplainable attitude to cause evil, distress or injury to others. Envy, on the other hand, is, a, is to feel a grudging discontentment aroused by others' achievements, their possessions, what they've achieved or their quality, the quality and the talents they may have. Have you ever wrestled with envy before? Hated by others and hating one another. This hostility, a sin of the heart, a sin of the thought and mind, enmity and strife with others because we lack the peace of God. It's clear that it's, it's a devastating diagnosis Paul gives. A person unaware of their sinfulness will remain full of sin and without hope. Why? Because all sin, just as these mentioned by Paul, is ultimately rebellion against the almighty God. How do we know? Because chapter 1 verse 3 says, Paul has been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. And then if we jump to chapter 3 verse 4, we see that it is the kindness of God our Saviour that saves us. We are all born with a sinful nature. And sin is a rebellion against a holy and righteous God. Remaining in the state of sin and endorsing this sinful nature that Paul has left behind is, is, is dangerous. There is judgment to come. And you're not fleeing to your only hope of safety if you don't come to the Lord. That attitude is the very issue raised in Romans 1, 28 to 32, which reads, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, confessiousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Do you see yourself on this list? See, death and the wrath of God is the expectation for those who remain entangled in sin. Those who have not had their sins forgiven and reject God. It's a sad condemnation for those who don't see the reality of their sins. But for the Christian, that sinful life was our lost condition. Paul writes, we were. We were, meaning that is not who we are now. A change has occurred. Now we would not observe any difference if our sinful nature was compared with just someone that's like us, another human being. We can't see the sinfulness of our sins by observation. But we can only see our sins revealed in the light of God's truth. Growing up, I... I used to say this phrase, I, I cannot phantom that. And to mean that I, I cannot believe and understand something. But as I got older, 
people used to correct me very kindly and said, no, I think what you mean is you cannot fathom. (laughs) You cannot fathom that. And those are verbal errors. But all sinners need a saviour to show us our sinfulness. We need a saviour to show us our sinfulness. And so we must read about who we once were, for we were ourselves were once in light of, verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. He saved us. And that's our second point this morning, the saved life. The saved life. Essentially, what we have here in verse 4 to 7 is a wonderful summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll look at it in three stages. That the basis of our salvation, secondly, the work of our salvation, and finally, the profit of our salvation. The latter will help us to conclude our three main points this morning. But let's look firstly at the basis of our salvation. This is, this is the Christian life, the godly life, the only life worth living. Uh, any other life lives to eternal death. Paul uses these popular two words. He says, but when, but when, to make mention of the striking contrast with the depravity of verse 3. What is the game changer here for Paul? What is the game changer for all true believers? Verse 4 tells us, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. What transforms a hell-bound sinner into a heaven-bound saint is nothing but the goodness and loving kindness of God. Jesus Christ is the goodness and loving kindness of God personified. He is the reason why anyone who was once a slave to various passions and pleasures becomes a servant of God. A doulos, a slave, mentioned in chapter 1. He's a reason for those who were once who passed their days in malice and envy with hatred to others now are able to show perfect courtesy to all people. What happened to bring about this change of attitude, this change of behaviour, this change of conduct? Well, God shows love and kindness to sinners. God's kindness has been described as his beneficial provision that meets the need of sinful man. In a sense, we could say that God shows pity on helpless people like us, those who were dead in sin and without a way of escape, held bound, held fast bound to destructive passions and pleasures, unaware of our sinfulness. We acted foolishly. We were lost in worldly, in a worldly pool. Of chaos, not even aware of the depth of our foolishness and lostness. But God tenderly, tenderly approaches sinners with concern to help the helpless and to train the unteachable. It is God's kindness that leads any sinner to repentance, that is to turn away from sin. Reminded in Psalm 25, verse 7, that David writes, Remember not my sins of my youth. All my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. And David makes it clear that the only way that his sins are removed is by God's benevolence. 
rooted in his kindness and his goodness. And Paul, in telling Titus to remind us, to remind the Christians here, that it's only God's unchanging character that gives grace. It's only his grace that could ever change us, could ever lead us to renounce ungodliness and to renounce our sins. See, God not only shows kindness and goodness, but he is kind. He is good. That's his nature. So what does it mean that he has saved us? It's part B of this second point, the work of salvation. Verse 5 says, he saved us. God, our saviour, our saviour, saved us. That is to say that Jesus is the first and foremost and that he is alone, he alone saves sinners. You cannot get more exclusive than that. There is no salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name given under heaven amongst men by which we must be saved. But notice the verse does not say the saviour, but our saviour. Here is a personal saviour. Not a distant God or out of touch, but a relational God who has entered the sin-stained world. And so Paul gives us two facets of our salvation. We are saved from ungodliness, but we are also saved to God. We're saved by Jesus Christ. Sinners are delivered from sin and the consequences of sin and are saved for a heavenly inheritance to spend eternity with God. We sinners were shackled and enslaved by the the chains of sin and ungodliness. We were not aware of the darkness in which we walked blindly. But now we've received sight. We've been brought into his marvellous light. We no longer live according to worldly ways, but by his godly way. Jesus redeems us from lawlessness. That is a sin of transgressing God's law. It's a rebellion of God's command, of his way, of his righteousness, of his goodness, of his kindness towards us. How did he redeem us? Well, think of those old movies. Not that old, but think of those old movies, right? Where there was a bounty offered for finding a villain. The villain's face would be plastered on, on posters everywhere. I think Brother Michael remembers this. With the words, wanted, dead or alive. £50,000 for anyone who finds the villain. But that villain is you and I. That villain is you and I. The wages of sin, the penalty of sin is death. There is a cost attached to us transgressing God's holy law. And we want... the, the, The poster says, you are wanted... Every human being comes into the world with that poster. You are wanted. You're not wanted for good things. You're wanted because you're a sinner. But Jesus, rich in love, kindness, found us. We could never run away from him anyway. He paid that bounty. Not with money. But he gave his life as a ransom to purchase us, to secure us, our deliverance from condemnation. Of sin. See, Titus 3 5 helps us to understand that we are saved by Jesus' work and not, by, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. 
The emphasis is in the not. Not because of works done by us. There's nothing we could ever bring except for our sins. But according to God, God's own mercy. Mercy is not receiving the judgment that is deserved. The judgment, that bounty, that destruction that is deserved. God shows us mercy. And so we don't receive the penalty for our wrongful and heinous sins. When we bring those two verses together, God's loving kindness and that we cannot bring anything of our own works, when we bring those verses together, it reveals the redemption of Christ by his mercy. Jesus reveals that mercy as a merciful saviour. One who did not hand us over to as villains, but willingly gave himself in our place to take the punishment we deserved. But the gospel doesn't stop there. The gospel continues. Sin and his result are taken care of. Jesus, having redeemed us by his own blood, blood on the, on the cross that he shed on Mount Calvary, renews us by his spirit. A Christian is not only forgiven in Christ, but receives new life in Christ through the Holy Spirit. That's why 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, all the new has come. The Holy Spirit, co-eternal with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ, works to change and grow a believer. That's what it means in verse 5 by regeneration and renewal. The Holy Spirit gives spiritual life to dead sinners, a new heart and a Christ-focused lens to trust and to see Christ, to turn away from our old life and to now obey God's word and to obey his law. He applies the work of Christ to the life of a Christian. From the beginning to the end, the Holy Spirit is at work. Verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour. God pours out his Holy Spirit on sinners richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour. He lavishes us with his Spirit. A holy God that is mindful of us. Why should he be mindful of us who have rejected him? God pours out his Holy Spirit on sinners And so we are then saved from sin. We are saved from sin to God. We become alive in him. And this is our third point. We are saved to be with God. Prophet. There is a prophet to know God. We are saved to be with God. What a great gain. We can... Not gain much in this world, but if we gain God, we have it all. The author of life. The one who stands with us through thick and thin, through every suffering, through every turmoil, through every decision. The one we don't need to hide from, but we need to run to. We are saved to be with him. And so we read verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. To justify is to declare sinners righteous. When we believe, when you believe in Jesus to be the only one who can deliver you from your sins, that is the faith that God himself gives you. 
There's nothing that we in our, by ourselves can conjure up. But he gives us the faith to trust in him. Justification is then an act of God to declare sinner, a sinner righteous. Because why? Jesus has brought us into a loving relationship with him. His righteousness is now our righteousness. His death on the cross is the death of our sin. And his life is now our life. God declares sinners righteous by revealing his righteous work through Jesus Christ to ransom us to glory. We are justified by God's grace, not because of works done by us in righteousness. But what is the result of us coming into this righteous relationship with God? Verse verse 7 again, that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is our final point this morning. It's a secure life. It's a secure life. The gospel is the basis for godly living as it deals with our sinful life and renews us to live this saved life in order that we may be with God eternally. That's the goal of salvation, to be with God himself. To have this sure foundation in every situation that you have a place that you're going that no one can take from you, that you are rooted and seated with Christ. That is an assurance that is so sure, brothers and sisters, that no earthquake, nothing in this world can take from you. What does it mean to have this secure life? To be a Christian is not a means to escape suffering in this life now. It's not the means to live the comfortable life that we all dreamed of. It's not the means to be financially blessed now. It's not primarily a means to receive healing from all our ailments now. It's not even the means to escape physical death. But we're reminded in the first stanza of the hymn, Christ is mine forevermore. Mine are days that God has numbered. I was made to walk with him. Yet I look for worldly treasure and forsake the king of kings. But mine is hope in my redeemer. Though I fall, his love is sure. For Christ has paid for every failing. I am his forevermore. That's our assurance, brothers and sisters. Our past may come to, people may come to remind us of our past. But this blessed assurance that's in Christ is our foundation. That there's nothing that the enemy can bring from our past. That can remind us of as much God's goodness to forgive us, his loving kindness to put those things in the past. To wipe the slate clean. To make us just before his throne. That we have this bold access into his presence. He has torn the wall of hostility. He has broken the curtain that you may come in. Why don't you come in to his presence? Why don't you seek this living God? The secure assurance of being with God forever is the ultimate reward. And so as we close this morning, how should you respond to the truth that the gospel is the basis for godly living. 
or in my line of work, I, I supply substance misusers with a substitute medication, sometimes methadone and tablets and other things for their addiction to hard drugs. Um, there are many organisations that help with this, um, as uh, many support groups, right, that are funded also by the NHS. But one organisation is called CGL, Change, Grow, Live. And some of my patients I, I've witnessed literally for 15 years come either on a daily basis or a weekly basis. Some, some of them I've shared a gospel with. They're no longer on illicit hard drugs, but they now are dependent on this substitute over a period of time, and they just come every day, every week. Whilst able to continue with their life in most cases, but nevertheless, they have exchanged one addiction for another. The good news of Jesus Christ is so different. His divine substitution as he took our place on the cross. He suffered to die for us. He suffered to die for you. He took your place. To, it's an overcoming substitution. It's not just hearsay. He took our sins on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for you and I. So that in him we might be righteousness of God. Love as vast as the ocean flows down at the cross of Calvary to free captives from sin and captivate, captivate us with new desires and new passions. A new heart for him. He's granted us a new life in Christ. It's a beautiful exchange. It's not like the exchange I talked about earlier. It's a beautiful exchange because sinners are now saved. That brother... Rob says, we have a new surname. We are family in Christ. We are saved. We're not our past anymore. Jesus has the power to break all addictions to sin. He saves the vilest offender. He conquered the, dread, the grave and he is the way to eternal life. What the best of organisations like CGL cannot do, Jesus does infinitely. Change, grow, live. He, he alone can change us. He can take us. He takes us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of light. He alone grows us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. He alone gives us life to live godly lives in this present age and beyond that hope of eternal life. Do you know this amazing saviour? One who forgives sins. One who has come near to us. One has picked us from the miry clay. Who is able to dust sins off. Who is able to justify you and make you perfect in the sight of God. Do you know the saviour this morning? See, nothing else matters. Nothing compares to knowing him. Nothing compares to being known by him. Do you know, even the demons believe in God. James says they shudder. They believe in God. It's not enough to know God. Are you known by God? Will God 
on that day, fateful day, say, welcome, my good and faithful servant. Or would he say, I do not know you. I do not know you. You came to church every week. You joined in evangelism. You served in the church. But I do not know you. May that not be our story. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till tomorrow. Jesus saves sinners even now. This day. A life without Christ, they say, is crisis. It's more than that, I'm afraid. It's a life without, a life without Christ is a condemned life. Hell awaits those who do not repent, those who do not believe in the name of Jesus, who do not accept him as Lord and Saviour. Ask Jesus not to pass you by this morning. He is gracious. He is merciful. Run to him this morning. Run to him this day. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, well, firstly, this truth should make us grateful. For we ourselves were once foolish. We were disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But... Jesus, the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared and saved us. If we're not thankful for that, then the chances are that we are not saved. Because it's a great thing to know that my sins have been washed. My sins, not in part, but the whole have been nailed to the cross. They're not with me no more. My sins, past, present, future, have been cleansed. Life with God. But more so, we have God as our Saviour. When we look through Titus, Titus 1.3, Titus 1.4, 2.10, Paul reminds us, Jesus, our Saviour, God, our Saviour, our Saviour. This is the God that we serve. It can only make us to be thankful. Secondly, One of the ways that the Bible affirms that we are true believers of Christ is that there is a change in us. It should be a distinction between our old life and how we live now. We should be growing in holiness. We should live godly lives. That is, holy regard for God and how he wants us to live, not the way we desire but a surrender and submission to him. That's where our assurance lies. Because such a life is evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work. And thus a guarantee for our hope of eternal life. It's an assurance thing. This secure life. Some of us battle with assurance. But can you see a change in your life? Can others witness that you are living for God? If there has been a change, praise God. Now continue to live as such. Continue to pursue righteousness. Continue to ask the Lord for a thirst for righteousness. That each day, give me a thirst. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you. Are you thirsty for God? Thirdly and finally, 
knowledge of our own past should motivate us to obey the commands given in Titus 3 verses 1 to 2. It should also motivate us to be gentle and considerate to others who may be unsaved. And like we heard last week with Pastor Gavin, it should motivate us to snatch others from the destruction. We should have a hunger and desire to witness about Christ. To be considerate, to be merciful, but also to snatch others from destruction. When we see others acting up and swimming in, our, in, in sin, our response, our response should be, there but the grace of God go I, if not for the grace of God. But we should also plead with the Lord of heaven, the, their creator, to save them, to bring them to saving knowledge of him. In recap, the gospel is the basis for godly living. We've looked at the sinful life, the saved life, which includes the basis of our salvation, the work of Christ for our salvation, but the profit also of salvation. And finally, the secure life in Christ. So the gospel redeems sinners from a sinful life. It saves sinners from destruction and secures eternal life with God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.